The Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to Science and Storytelling, a GSA 75th anniversary podcast on aging. I am Danielle A. Waldron, PhD, Assistant Professor of Healthcare Administration at Stonehill College in Northeastern Massachusetts and GSA ESPO Section Officer. Today, I'm interviewing GSA Fellow Michelle Putnam, PhD, Professor and Director of the Doctoral Program in the School of Social Work at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, we will discuss disability and aging. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Okay, so I figure we can start out our very first podcast episode with the question, what is gerontology? Yeah, good question. Gerontology is the study of aging and the study of the life course. It's a very interdisciplinary field. Great. Well, we're super excited to have you here and really, really excited that you're our very first speaker because our topic today is about aging and disability. So I'm pretty sure everyone is pretty familiar with the fact that the population is aging. Um, We are going to see an influx of aging older adults in the coming years. And additionally, about one in four Americans have a disability. And so we know that this is really an important topic to nearly everybody. So we're really excited to have you here with us. So first, we're going to explore the state of the science, which is an exploration about what's going on in this field, uh, the past of the field, the present, and what we can expect in the future. And then we're going to hear a little bit of storytelling to learn more about Michelle and how she chose this field and where she sees it going. So the first question we have for Michelle, uh, was there a pivotal moment that advanced the science in this field that all listeners should learn about? No, (laughs) I think, um, I mean, I would say yes, but no. I mean, there are two ways to understand disability and aging. One group of people are people who will live most of their lives and only encounter disability in later life. And that's the majority of people, by and large, where disability really impacts their day to day. And there's probably nothing monumental or a a pivotal moment per se in research or scholarship around that group of people. Um, The other group of people are people who will experience disability earlier in life. And that may be a disability that they are born with or they acquire at a very young age or even as uh, adults in midlife and they'll grow older with it. That also can be a sizable population, um, depending on the particular condition we're looking at. And it can be a smaller population um, if if it's another condition. So, for example, there are people growing older with intellectual disabilities, and that's a relatively small group of people, but they've seen a large... um, extension in their lifespan. And then there are people who have more um, physical functional impairments in midlife. And that can be related to a lot of different conditions. And that's a relatively larger group of people. So I would say really the, the pivotal moment in research, I think, are more around uh, the group of people who are growing older with this disability they acquired in early life or were born with. And some of those pivotal moments are honestly just our realization that those people grow older um, and experience acceleration of aging in a lot of cases. Um, 
And I would say the other pivotal moment I see for most people who are growing older with disability, regardless of when they acquire their disability, is probably not research or science per se. It's more related to policy and things like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the way that we think about people's rights. Um, related to disability. Those are probably the more pivotal moments for the population at large. Great, yeah, that is um, a really interesting perspective and I think gives us a sense of how broad and uh, wide ranging disability and aging can be from aging with disability to acquiring uh, disability with age, which are two distinct, but um, two populations that really um, in late life might uh, need some of the same services. So um, going forward to the next question, I have some questions about how research findings, either your own or in the field, have really translated into practical use. You mentioned the importance of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so we're curious to hear about how um, both policy and research findings have really been meaningful for this population. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think overall, um, one of the ways that policy and research have come together and shaped some of what we do as scholars, but also what happens in the, in the practice world is really that um, probably starting in the 1980s, there was much more effort looking at um, people in their independence, people with disabilities and um, independent living. A lot of that comes out of the disability rights movement that brought to our attention that we were doing a really poor job helping people with disabilities live outside institutions. Um, and also understanding that services, uh, most, for the most part, we had been looking at services provided in long-term care institutions and facilities and like nursing homes. We start to see with this change in the rights perspective that happens in the 1970s, in the 1980s, and then moving into the 1990s, much more research attention to home and community-based services, in particular in providing people supports in the communities where they live. Um, and I think what that has contributed from then and moving forward is much growth in the work that we do to understand what works best for people, what meets their day-to-day -day needs, where would they like to uh, grow older, what what would they like to do? Um, what types of supports can we offer and provide that help them do the things that they want to do? And I think research has contributed to that over time and it's been um, kind of a little bit of a dance between public policy and research where the research shows that people live better lives outside of institutions um, and they can contribute and participate a lot in their communities with supports and services provided to them. And then the policy sort of doing this dance and trying to keep up and supporting um, funding for provision of services and supports outside of institutions. And I think practically what that's meant um, is that the field of aging has shifted a lot from looking at deficits that related to disability in particular, to looking at just variation in lived experience. Um, thinking about old age as a time when you can contribute and engage and starting to move 
much farther along the spectrum and thinking about um, that includes people who are growing older with disability or who age into disability, trying to help people still be active and contributing um, members of their family and participating in the society. I think some of our attitudes too have started to change. Um, and I should say sometimes the research and the policy moves faster than perceptions and attitudes as well. So for quite a long time, um, there's been a thought that disability is um, a loss and that means you can't participate and engage. And I think we are seeing a shift towards a, a bigger view of what people who are growing older with disabilities can do. And much of that can be accredited to the um, independent living movement, the disability rights movement, the Americans with Disabilities Act, to really think more broadly about um, people contributing across the life course and the, the importance of people being engaged because when they're not, then we lose their talents and we lose their um, engagement. And that's a loss for society overall at any age. So I think in the, in the fields of practice, then some of what we see is a shift to um, everything from area agencies on aging to home and community-based services to community organizations, maybe even relating to volunteering, those sorts of things, just a really wide shift to trying to understand how we can be more inclusive and engage a wider range of people, particularly older adults who may experience disability in later life. Wow, okay, so you hit upon a lot of really good points here. And a few of them really stuck out to me. I think that the first one was um, how autonomy and focusing on really life enrichment and community inclusion over the life course. And that is very important in our society, especially right now with all of the social isolation uh, with COVID-19 and the disproportionate impacts on um, both older adults and uh, people with disabilities. And so really trying to make sure that their wellness and um, social needs are met. And a lot of that stems from um, living arrangement. Uh, so I was curious, bringing it back to the policy uh, lens for a second, I'm, I'm really interested in, say for example, the Olmstead Act of 1999. How do you think that maybe older adults could use policies really meant for people with disabilities, but really try to draw on um, what policies such as the ADA or Olmstead could do for older adults. Do you think that there's room for growth in how these communities communicate and really can um, benefit from policies made on behalf of one of the populations? That's a good question. Um, so I, I think one of the things that, one of the things that, um, the case with people who study older adults and people who study gerontology is um, for quite a long time, we've mostly looked at that later life piece and not thought much about earlier life and how that affects people over time. And I think we're doing better at looking at that. Um, and I think, um, I think in the field of disability in rehabilitation for a long time, that field is mostly focused on working age adults, assuming that people stopped working at 65 um, and not really focused on older, older adults. Um, so this is kind of a long way around to your question, but I mean, I think one of the, one of the interesting things to me is that when we talk about people with disabilities, we often don't include older adults in that, but of course, of course, older adults are part of that population. So if we just think about disability 
as function, um, whether it's mental or physical, intellectual, whatever type of function, it doesn't matter how old you are um, if you're experiencing barriers to engagement and participation, then then you're experiencing them. So the Americans with Disabilities Act applies to everybody, regardless of age. If you are having trouble getting, you know, on a bus. Um, you know, using a, a sidewalk, um, getting into a grocery store, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're not, that's not supposed to be happening. So, and also in terms of um, the Olmstead Act, which, which um, really says that people should be allowed to receive um, supports and services in the community where they live at home, and they shouldn't have to go to an institution to get the help and supports that they need. That applies to any age too. So I, I think some of it is just our thinking about how we understand disability and disability rights. Somebody's rights are no different if you're 99 and you have a disability or if you're 36 and you have a disability. What you might want to do with your time might be different or who you want to spend it with might be different but fundamentally the rights are the rights and i i, I think um i think that's one thing that we can all do better in um thinking about is who belongs in which group um and in thinking more broadly about how aging and disability the experiences are aging and growing older. It's an experience of having disability, but we don't have to necessarily put people into population categories based on those traits. That is really helpful. Um, just to kind of reframe how we're thinking about these groups really as instead of two populations, um, really the overlapping, they, they really can be grouped together in a lot of ways. I think that's um, really helpful to kind of visualize. So I just wanted to ask, um, do you have any ideas for any new and improved policies or practices related to healthy aging? Uh, anything we haven't touched on yet? Sure. Um, I think one of the areas that we really need to focus on is participation and engagement and trying to understand what helps people do the things that they want to do. And though that's present both in the field of gerontology and both in the field of disability. And I think we know, right, as you mentioned, with the COVID situation we have right now, um, loneliness, isolation, um, those are big issues, right? So social participation, social engagement is a big issue. Um, community participation, community engagement is a big issue. And I think really trying to understand what, you know, what people want to do and what's getting in the way of what they want to do and um, what happens when they can't do what they want to do across all different domains. I think, you know, we don't always think about participation as part of health so much, but it really is. Um, I'm involved in a research center that's based at Washington University in St. Louis right now. It's called the Community Engagement for Disability and Aging Research Center Midwest. And we're looking at a population of people who are between the ages of um, 45 and 65 and growing older with disability. Um, most people have had um, some sort of physical mobility impairment for about 20 years. Um, and this study is just trying to understand what happens to people over time. Um, with their participation and engagement. And a lot of things we see are that people don't have the support and services that they need, that they're not working, that they maybe live alone. Um, they don't have the same social support network. They're running into community barriers. And I, I think that's part of healthy aging, regardless of when you want to start 
um, defining <laughs> the aging process, mm-hmm. but certainly midlife, you could do that. Um, but it's really um, how how can you stay engaged and active in your community in the way that you want to do that? So I think focusing on that more is going to be important to understanding how how people um, live healthy healthy lives longer and how we take a broader view of what contributes to health. That's really interesting. And um, I think for all of our listeners and also myself, one thing that keeps coming up here is really community engagement and involvement. I can share a little bit about what I've uh, been working on in my classes. So First semester, I had an intergenerational book club with my students. Um, It was really awesome. I had uh, members of the community join my class um, to discuss Tuesdays with Maury. And of course, the conversation really uh, took all sorts of turns. We learned about how Zooming with grandchildren was going. We learned about um, one of the members who had decorated uh, the White House for Christmas one year with her amazing floral skills. So that was an example of really getting um, some community engagement via technology with college students and older adults in COVID. And it was really great. And there's interest to continue this series um, throughout the year. So that is one example of how um, really turning aging stereotypes of not being able to use technology on its head and also gaining some community engagement during these uh, difficult times as we learn to cope with the new normal. Um, And then also another example in my disability course this semester, we have um, done a virtual tour with the House of Possibilities also in Easton uh, and really the technology has really opened some doors for us. We've been able to meet with all sorts of experts and uh, people with disabilities in in a single semester. And normally if you can get one or two guest lecturers in a semester, that um, would be awesome. But with this technology, we're getting guest lectures almost once a week. Uh, So that has been really interesting. And I think eye-opening for students to really get into the aging and disability communities and uh, think critically about their own perceptions and misperceptions and also how um, they can best support older adults and individuals with disabilities in their emerging careers. Um, So I think what you're saying, Michelle, in short, um, really resonates with a lot of the work that I'm doing and I'm really happy to hear the attention to community engagement and participation uh, over the life course. Uh, So with that, I would like to, you know, we've looked uh, towards the past, we've looked at the present, and um, I'm curious, looking forward, what does the future hold for this field, do you think? Yeah, I, I think the direction of this field I hope, let me say, I hope the direction of this field continues to move towards understanding ways to ensure that as people age, they can live in the community and do the things that they want to do. So I am coming back to that community participation theme. But I I think one thing that we should be taking away from the COVID pandemic is the importance of people being able to live at home, wherever that home is for them. 
and the importance of um, people, particularly older adults, to be able to engage. I think there's a lot of research to be done around that. I think there's a lot of um, soul searching in some cases <laughs> about our biases, biases about older adults and nursing homes and institutions, even for people who have dementia. There, there, you know, there are plenty of models across the world about how people live well and in community-based settings in differently then we structure nursing homes and other institutions. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of lessons to take away from that. And just to circle back to the civil rights and disability rights issues, um, we, we've seen definitely seen a lot of tragedy for older adults in nursing homes and for people with disabilities. Um, and on the disability side of the house, there's been a huge push from that disability rights community to make sure that people are not institutionalized when they would not like to be, because that's a dangerous setting for them. And I, I, I think some of this, our soul searching has to be looking a little bit harder, um, particularly in the field of gerontology, about what we as professionals or we as scholars uh, think is acceptable for older adults, um, and if thinking more about what we what we would want to have happen to ourselves. So a little less othering in some ways of older adults and a little bit more thinking about including older adults in our research, in our work, engaging stakeholder groups, and really supporting the idea in all of our work that older people have a right, just as anybody else does, to be engaged in the community as much as they want to be, um, and we should be looking at providing supports and assistance to help them do that. So I think it's a. It, I think this area of work can move a lot farther down the line and stop looking at disability as such a deficit and a loss, and just start looking at it as just something normal. It happens, and so we move on and we figure out what we can do even in that situation. Um, and, and learn, I guess, a lot from younger people with disabilities who who do engage in that way. So, um, and I think that would be important for particularly for people who are growing older with disability and have had disability a long time because that's the framework and that's the mindset they're growing older with. Um, that is their right to still be able to participate and engage. And I think the field of gerontology um, needs to think about adopting that more and integrating that more into the work that they do. That is really a uh, good insight, Michelle. I think that if I were to get either like two tattoos or put new signs outside my office, I think that one would say a little less othering and the other one would say hashtag soul searching um, because those are um, really too easy to process, um, you know, phrases, right? A little less othering. We're all human. We are all going to have days when we are feeling ill, when we need a little bit of help, when our environment isn't meeting our needs. Um, and so really trying to look at the social model of aging or looking at um, not the person with disability or the older adult as the problem, but instead thinking about what is wrong with our environment that we can't meet the needs of everyone. Like we can do better. Uh, so thinking about that. And then uh, the second thing, soul searching. Yes. If there was ever a time to uh, do some self-reflection or really take a look at the world and what we can do better. Uh, 
You know, it just, I think now is the time in a range of different topics that we don't have time to, you know, go through all of the things that I think we are uh, reflecting upon over the past couple of years. But um, I think that striving for equity is very important. And, um, you know, looking at ourselves and seeing what our own, um, our own misconceptions, I I mentioned my students before, but we are all having um, conceptions, misconceptions that we can really uh, dig into and challenge. So uh, I thank you for the expertise on the state of the science. And now we're going to kind of shift gears. Uh, I want to hear from you. What is the story behind why you chose this uh, field to research in? Sure. So I started um, thinking about gerontology and disability at a a really young age, seems very long ago, but actually as an undergraduate in college. Um, in what I'll say, and I'll, I'll put a plug in here for GSA as I go along, um, my career has benefited tremendously by mentorship. And um, that mentorship started when I was an undergraduate in college and working with um, some significant leaders I was fortunate enough to work with some significant leaders in the field of gerontology in different disciplines. Um, And through engaging with them, like just really thinking about gerontology as an interdisciplinary field um, and thinking about disability from that social model perspective and a rights perspective, that just really clicked for me. And over time, as I moved through my education, um, I've met a significant number of people who themselves were aging with disability. Um, I've been in this field over 20 years. So some of them were much younger when I met them and now they're older and I've watched them age as well. And I think that for me, um, it is really the ability to try to puzzle together these two fields of aging with disability, which has captured my attention over time. And then as I've met people along the way who've been grateful, or I've been grateful that they've shared their stories with me. They've been very generous to help me understand these two fields and how they knit together and different perspectives um, related to disability and different perspectives related to aging. But I've consistently had this mentorship and some of that's come through the Gerontology Society of America. Some of it's come from other places, but really, uh, to me, it's been this chance to try to understand these really kind of complex concepts, right? Going, growing older is, uh, simple in one way and really complex to think about another way. And so is disability. So for me, that's, that's sort of the very short and condensed story behind, um, my interest and how I've come to it, but definitely what's kept me moving along is the great number of stakeholders from all, you know, could be scholars, could be researchers, could be individuals in the community um, that have helped me fit together the pieces of this puzzle. And that's been um, really intellectually interesting and then also really rewarding to be able to contribute back to the community through my own work. That's awesome. Um, I love to hear what really inspires people and what gets them working hard. Um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't share that I am a sibling. My sister, Emily, has uh, Down syndrome, autism, and type 1 diabetes, and as you can imagine, a list of other comorbidities. And uh, now now she is 
25 years old and uh, we have, you know, just started to notice some changes in her as she's getting a little bit older. And um, I just want to thank you for uh, your work, really supporting the disability and aging community and um, striving to do the best for Emily and uh, others living with disability. And uh, so I'm curious about uh, some of these stories that inspired you. Can you think of maybe one example of a self-advocate or a family that you've encountered and uh, how their story really propelled you to do some more work in the field or uh, get things moving? Yeah, I'm thinking, so I'm gonna rephrase that because I I was thinking as you were talking, um, I don't know that I've run across people that have inspired me with their stories stories per se. I think what's happened in my situation is that I've run across a wide range of people who have helped me understand the issues differently. So I'm super privileged to work with people with disabilities who are also researchers and have for over the past 20 years, um, people with significant disabilities who are stellar, um, stellar performers in academia, um, scholars, policy advocates. Um, one of my colleagues I work with now is an Olympian. And, no um, big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but I, I think it's less inspired from a personal story and more um, from my perspective as I've engaged in with the in the in different communities to to work on different research projects, um, I think it's more that those people have been generous enough to help me advance my thinking, help me understand what my biases are, help me critically think about things. They've shared their stories, pieces of their lives, their thoughts with me as they've educated me about what it means to live with a significant disability. And I think that that in many ways um, has nudged me along to um, just develop myself more, to understand um, myself as a researcher, myself as a scholar, to understand how to collect better data, how to craft better research questions, how to understand the issues in different ways, um, how to move out of you know my own mindset and understand other people's lives more and and therefore like just to be a better contributor <laughs> be a better researcher um, and be a better scholar because I'm getting closer to doing work that actually is helpful <laughs> and mm -hmm. useful um, and so I think you know some of those stories are learning about people who advocated for decades to see policy change for civil rights. Um, people who found that their disability was actually advantageous in a resource. It helped them because they got supports that other people didn't in their situation. They leveraged those into a better spot for themselves. Um, those sorts of things, I think that I've been incredibly fortunate to learn from people. And I've been incredibly fortunate that when I make mistakes <laughs> or screw up or say something biased or don't understand truly what's going on, that they've been generous enough to help me learn. And so I think that that's, that's been really important to my career. 
Um, so it's not so much an inspiring story that's motivated me per se. I think that I'm just, I've been such a recipient of people's generosity and helping me understand the issues that I'm interested in and the issues that I see people um, struggling with in the community that I know we can do better with. Um, it's really the, the teaching that they've done and helped me with that's been really critical. And I think that that kind of in some ways keeps me inspired and keeps me moving along um, really from that perspective of wanting to contribute and participate um, and help in a way that I think I can, particularly as a person without disabilities, because sometimes um, sometimes not having a disability helps me understand the audience that I might be speaking to for a policy issue or research issue are also people who don't have disabilities who also will not understand that experience very well. So sometimes I feel like I can be a conduit in that way. And that, that I think is important for me to engage in that role as well. Awesome. Yeah. So that, um, is a really good perspective. It kind of reminds me of how when anyone calls me an expert in disability, I cringe because I am, I'm a learner. I do not have a disability. It's my job to collect information from people who do have disabilities and then share that uh, with others. And like you said, sometimes sharing that with others who also do not have a disability. So I think that that is really uh, insightful perspective. And, um, I appreciate you uh, describing the different pieces that have come together that kind of all taken together inspired you to keep uh, pursuing research in this field. So we're getting pretty close to the end here. Uh, and you've mentioned uh, GSA and some of the mentors that you've had. And I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about what GSA has meant to you and um, if there are particular mentors or experiences that helped you in your career. I've been a member of GSA um, probably close to 30 years. I think I started as a student. Um, so it, it's been important to me to go to the GSA conferences over the years and learn, you know, what um, scholars and academics and researchers are presenting there to build a professional network there has been really important. Um, but I'll say beyond that, you know, GSA as an organization has been incredibly supportive of the population that I focus most of my work on, which is people who are growing older with disabilities that they acquired in earlier midlife. GSA has been very receptive to that topic. And that's not always true of, of uh, gerontology audiences, because sometimes we're looking at younger people who aren't older and it doesn't always fit into the box of studying aging for a lot of people. Um, but through GSA, I've met different um, mentors who've been significant um, in helping me obtain grants, uh, work on research projects. Um, I was a uh, Hartford fellow in, earlier in my career, which GSA was very supportive of the Hartford Foundations, John A. Hartford Foundations fellow program to help social work faculty and aging in particular. Um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a grant funded project by the National Institutes on Health that was co-sponsored by GSA and put forth a, a conference on knowledge translation in the area of aging with disability and long-term services and supports. Um, but I would just say through my career, GSA as an organization has been a home for this topic, which is important. And um, it's allowed me to build a network 
and interact with other researchers. And um, I won't name any particular mentors, but there are significant <laughs> mentors within within GSA um, who I think have been consistently important to my career. And I think part of my own work now where I am in, at in my own career is to um, be supportive of also um, emerging scholars and newer scholars in the field and help them along as well. So that, that's been a critical part of GSA in my career. Thanks for sharing that. I think, um, well, one part of that that really resonated with me, and I can probably thank you for kind of paving the way um, for my research, my dissertation research was on adults with autism age 18 to 70. And I am a gerontologist and I study 18 to 70 year olds because we know that accelerated aging and shortened life expectancy is um, something that we really need to consider when it comes to lifelong disability. So with that, thank you, Michelle. Uh, we really loved having you here today and kicking off this series. And um, yeah, so I think that's about it. Thank you. You're welcome. Great. Okay, so to learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education, to advance innovations in policy and practice. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.